podcasts, we are talking about polio eradication in Nigeria, a true African success story. And I am in conversation with Dr. Faisal Shuwab, the Executive Director and CEO of Nigeria's National Primary Health Development Agency. We are talking about Nigeria eradicating a virus that used to paralyze tens of thousands of children on the African continent, the wild polio virus. Dr. Shiwab, welcome to the con to conversations about health, health in Africa. It's really great to have you. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Wonderful. So what I'm hoping that we can talk about, let's start with the significance of polio eradication in Nigeria for global, for, for global health. Um, let me take you back to 2015 when Nigeria uh, is removed from the list of countries where polio is endemic and the other countries on that list included Afghanistan and Pakistan and they are still reporting cases today. Then the year after, in 2016, Nigeria had its last case of wild polio virus in Bono State and three years later, in August 2019, Nigeria had recorded, had not recorded a single case of the virus, which set the stage for Nigeria being certified polio-free in August 2020. As Africans, we celebrated this momentous achievement. And in a world where health security is so connected, the significance of polio eradication in Nigeria and on the African continent, of course, went beyond Nigeria and Africa. It is also important uh, for the entire global community. What did polio eradication mean for Nigeria and for Africa and for the rest of the, of the world, in your view? I think it's a momentous uh, occasion for all Africans uh, that finally uh, we're able to eradicate a, a disease that has crippled so many, uh, so many Nigerians, so many Africans, and has really prevented them from uh, reaching their full uh, potential. Uh, it must be a glorious day uh, to be able to look into the future. I know that uh, uh, we have really cut down on the uh, numbers of uh, Africans that uh, will uh, ever be paralyzed by this uh, virus. So I, for me, when I look back, um, you know, it's, it, it, it was a great day. Yeah, yeah, I, I believe that uh, it, it's, uh, it's the, the type of achievement that probably happens once in a lifetime. And I'm really proud uh, that uh, we were able to do this uh, together as Africans. Indeed, an achievement that, you know, comes once in a lifetime. And the WHO attributed this remarkable achievement to the resilience of the Nigerian uh, Primary Healthcare Development Agency, which you, of course, Dr. Shiwab, are leading as the Executive Director and CEO. Can you tell us a little bit about how Nigeria's primary healthcare system is organized and the extent to which this structure helped Nigeria to overcome its challenges with the polio program? Right, so uh, the Nigerian Primary Healthcare Development Agency uh, that I lead uh, is a parastatal under the Federal Ministry of Health, and uh, it has the, the mandate to coordinate, uh, provide policies, uh, and um, help in uh, supervising uh, the work that uh, states do around primary healthcare. So all of the things around immunization, around family planning, around uh, uh, basic uh, services, uh, linking services with communities. Uh, this is what, what, with respect to uh, the polio eradication program, uh, the agency uh, led the effort over uh, the last 20 years uh, to make sure uh, that we put in place innovative practices, uh, working with our development partners and donors, uh, and making sure that people are held accountable uh, for, that, for the work that, that they do. But I think one of the most important things that we're able to uh, to do in the course of uh, the last uh, 10, 20 years has been making sure uh, that the communities took ownership uh, for the polio eradication. That is to say that uh, ordinary community members um, under the leadership of local leaders, religious leaders, traditional leaders, uh, were able to see polio eradication as something that needed to be done and could only be done by 
ensuring that uh, kids under five got the vaccinations uh, against uh, the, uh, the white polio viruses. So community ownership was very, very important uh, and instrumental to uh, the success we eventually uh, you know, uh, saw with polio eradication. Yes, great. I mean, community ownership is really, you, you need leaders in the community taking the lead to, you know, um, direct these efforts. You also mentioned partners, working with partners. So in all of that time, you were fighting polio um, for, for, for a long time in Nigeria. You had been working with partners before, development partners, uh, presumably others in the private sector as well, who were involved in the effort. Was there something that was different about the way you were working with partners in the final push that made the difference to help you to succeed that you hadn't been doing before? Right, I, I, I bring it down uh, to uh, what we uh, call the Emergency Operations Center. Uh, so in, the, uh, in around 2011, 2012, uh, it became very obvious that all of the efforts that we had put into polio eradication was not yielding uh, the types of uh, successes uh, that we expected uh, because uh, different partners uh, were working in silos, right? So different partners, we say they have uh, enough funding for only this aspect of uh, polio eradication and, you know, the teams were not working together. What we did uh, differently uh, since 2012 uh, was to bring everybody together. Uh, under the leadership of government, our donors, our development partners came together uh, in, the in the Polio Emergency Operations Center as one team working with one plan, um, with one evaluation uh, and monitoring uh, mechanism. So we had a war room approach where we were able to use uh, data, uh, technology, accountability uh, that uh, uh, we were able to identify what the priorities were, and we were able to uh, channel cost resources into those priorities and made sure that those activities were implemented uh, to the letter. I believe, you know, breaking those silos, making uh, sure that people were working together under the leadership of government was what really turned the tide against uh, the wild polio uh, viruses. But with all of this, we made sure that communities uh, bought into it and that the traditional leaders uh, provided the leadership that was required at the community uh, level. I think that was really uh, the turning point uh, in our polio eradication uh, narrative. Yes, so, so uh, breaking the silos and bringing everybody um, under the leadership of government and working to the same priorities. I mean, that's fantastic. So clearly leadership played a very important role in this. I have met uh, President Obasanjo a few times um, and during the years leading up to the push, to the final push, it was said um, that you know, his leadership would make or break Nigeria's eradication efforts. And I understand others like Aliko Dangote and Bill Gates um, were also involved investing large amounts of money in the efforts with partners and community leaders, community health workers. So um, what was the missing link then um, that, that allowed all of this to, to, to fall in together? Was it leadership or was it a combination of other things um, that you have mentioned? I think it is a combination of uh, multiple factors. Uh, so first off, uh, we uh, realized uh, towards the end of um, uh, the late 2000s uh, that uh, a polar education program was a government program. It didn't have community buy-in. This is why for uh, most of the time of uh, the time between 2003 uh, to 2008, uh, we had um, you know a lot of non-compliance, uh, vaccine hesitancy. Uh, we had uh, a large numbers of communities that said they did not want the oral polio vaccines because uh, they did not feel uh, that uh, it was a priority. We had states actually uh, stopping vaccinations. And with those stoppages of the vaccinations, you know, there was an increase in the number of wild polio viruses being reported. They were also new from a programmatic point of view. So on the one hand, there was non-compliance, but on the other hand, in terms of programmatic execution, 
we did not find that uh, the health workers uh, were uh, accountable for poor performance. Uh, uh, there were many communities in rural areas that were not being reached. So a lot of kids were not uh, being vaccinated. Uh, but uh, what now happened was uh, we identified all of these different uh, bottlenecks and profiled specific solutions uh, to those bottlenecks. So in terms of uh, the non-compliance, uh, we brought in the traditional leaders and said, look, this is your program. You take ownership, you take leadership. They did that and we saw a transformation in the programs. Uh, in terms of uh, not reaching the kids uh, with the vaccines, uh, poor programmatic, programmatic efficiency, uh, lack of resources, all of those uh, we now also uh, profile solutions. So uh, we made uh, accountability uh, very important, right? Uh, so, but in order to also enhance uh, accountability, we brought in technology. So when we started out uh, in the early days of the polio eradication program, uh, we will use hand-drawn maps uh, to identify where settlements were, but with GIS technologies, we're able to uh, actually produce uh, GIS-based uh, uh, high-resolution maps that give us a clear visibility of where every settlement uh, was. So we're able to go to every settlement, every household to make sure that no child uh, was left um, uh, behind. And then, of course, like you mentioned, uh, because of the uh, support of uh, philanthropies such as Mr. Bill Gates, uh, Aliko Dam Bote and uh, the Global Polio Eradication Initiative. Uh, the uh, whole program was better resourced. Uh, we had more boots on the ground. We had more qualified uh, staff actually doing the work, providing leadership at different uh, levels. So yes, it was a question of multiple factors that had to be brought together, but it required uh, the leadership of government under the ambience, under the remits of the emergency operation center to make sure that not only did we have the right human resources, but we had the materials. Uh, we also had uh, the technology to make sure that uh, we were reaching every single child. And you know, it was very critical uh, that we listened also to the community uh, members. Yes, uh, we wanted to give uh, oral polio vaccines uh, to stop uh, the uh, white polio virus transmission, but the community members also said that we also have malaria killing our children. We also have pneumonia. What about all of those? So we listened to them. We went back, reassessed the programs, and now um, established what we call the health camps. So for those, so every time we went to the communities with the oral polio vaccines, we also went with treatment um, for malaria. Uh, we went with uh, nutritional supplements, uh, assessment of nutritional status. So we now went with a package of health services. Uh, so it was not only a vertical program, it now became a more integrated program and that also enhanced uh, the uh, support and accessibility of community members uh, to, of, uh, for the uh, white poliovirus uh, eradication program. Lots of important uh, points that you, you, you bring up, uh, providing a package of care and looking, you know, looking at other issues that the community is facing in order to improve buy-in and, and bringing in accountability of leaders on the ground within the communities as well as in all of government very critical and of course some parallels we can absolutely draw right with what we are living through right now with the covid pandemic and for, for instance the issue of vaccine hesitancy how did you convince um parents and and, and community leaders to overcome their fears of of the conspiracy theories that the vaccine would sterilize children, which was of course not true, or that it would cause HIV AIDS. How did you manage to, to overcome those fears within communities and convince parents to get children vaccinated? Right, so we brought in the traditional leaders, the religious leaders, and we gave them uh, the information that uh, they, they, they required. So vaccine hesitancy, as you well are aware, it's a global phenomenon, right? Uh, it occurs in every country and the solutions are similar. It is about uh, also working hard uh, to provide the correct information. It's not enough to just uh, work hard towards providing the vaccines, but also making sure that you are not dismissive of uh, the concerns raised by 
the community members uh, that you are not cynical when they are skeptical. Uh, so we went back to the communities, engaged with uh, the local leaders, uh, provided them with the information that uh, they needed, answered their questions uh, in the most basic terms, also engaged with religious leaders, also showed them uh, you know, examples of where uh, the different uh, religions uh, have spoken in favor of uh, vaccination and um, showing them very clearly that there was no conspiracy that is involved in uh, the vaccination uh, process. Once the community leaders uh, you know, were uh, on board, they now spoke to their people, to their followers, to their adherents you know, for the religious leaders and said, look, uh, these vaccines are safe. But beyond that, uh, we also saw a situation where uh, the leaders uh, went ahead and vaccinated uh, their children, in some instance, their grandchildren. You know, what better example, you know, that I have confidence in these vaccines than to actually uh, make sure that, uh, you know, a loved one uh, uh, gets the vaccines. You know, so all of those types of uh, interventions really helped to surmount uh, the, the, uh, the hesitancy. But I think one of the turning points, uh, points was also when uh, President Muhammadu Buhari came to power. And uh, because of the large followership that he has, especially uh, in Northern Nigeria, uh, you know, some of the last uh, few people that were still hesitant now saw that he vaccinated his own grand daughter. And, you know, that really, really uh, was uh, instrumental towards overturning uh, the last vestiges of uh, non-compliance in many parts uh, of, of the country. So uh, getting the local leaders, getting religious leaders, get influential people to speak in favor of the uh, vaccine is very, very important. And this is exactly what we're doing even with uh, COVID-19 vaccination, making sure uh, that people really uh, are able to demonstrate uh, its safety by getting the vaccines themselves and speaking in favor of, of the vaccine. And I believe that uh, once um, as uh, public health leaders, as scientists, uh, we do not take uh, the, the position of saying, you know, how can people not understand that vaccines work and instead work, work in the shoes of the layman, the person who is not a PhD in science, you know, understanding where he's coming from and taking the time uh, to explain to them what vaccination is all about most people are rational enough to say, yes, this makes sense. I will take the vaccine. Yes. So, I mean, engaging with people in a way that is understanding and really speaking to their fears and, of course, leading by example to show them that there is nothing to be afraid of. That's 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 Absolutely. really um, you know very important a very important lesson. What about then? Um, you, you mentioned technology, and uh, perhaps we could talk a little bit about that. During COVID, we are hearing a lot about how going forward to solve these challenges we are having with service disruptions. We need to leverage technology, and African health systems in particular will need to leapfrog some of the challenges using technology. So um, I would really like to, to hear your view. I mean, there are so many proposals that are made about how we can use technology. And some proposals, you know, given the current state of infrastructure, just don't seem very credible, you know, given our state of readiness. Um, but there's value, I think, in considering what could be the low-hanging fruits, the kind of simple technologies that could be deployed in an African setting, uh, pub public primary healthcare setting, uh, as it stands today, without needing several years of investment to put it into place, some of those things that are needed to improve service delivery in a real and meaningful way. So. I'd love to hear your thoughts about what kind of simple technologies do you think could be deployed into primary healthcare infrastructure that we already have in place uh, in its current state, uh, the, the, the kind of low hanging fruits that could enable countries to minimize service disruptions during this pandemic, during any pandemic situation that might come up in the future. Right, so uh, in any low uh, or middle uh, income country, um, in any African country, uh, so to speak, uh, there are opportunities uh, that we've learned from the polio eradication program 
for example, the use of uh, geographic information systems, the GIS, uh, what we've been able to use this for in the primary healthcare setting uh, is to really map out the catchment area uh, per health facility. Uh, using these uh, types of high resolution maps uh, uh, developed using GIS technology, uh, we're able to map out clearly uh, which settlements fall within the catchment area of uh, uh, different populations so that we know exactly uh, who lives in within that catchment area and what types of services are required. This helps for better planning. It helps you to do a better micro plan so that you are able to uh, really manage the scarce resources that you have for the number of people that live within that uh, catchment area. Then you are also able to balance how do you reach these uh, individuals in this catchment area with services? Uh, is it a fixed uh, post type of situation or is it that you will have to go to these uh, uh, communities uh, with outreach uh, services? You are better able to plan when you have a clear understanding of what uh, is in uh, what is within that uh, uh, catchment area. But beyond uh, that, we've also been able to use uh, GIS uh, technology uh, to figure out you know, where uh, we need uh, to be able to deploy services, right? So when you have a high resolution map, you know where the populations are, but are there basic infrastructure like health facilities, like, uh, like schools uh, that uh, need to be built? You know, for this community. So, if you are, if there's a large community of say uh, 5,000 people, and maybe the nearest uh, primary healthcare center is uh, 10 kilometers away, then you know for certain that you really have to do something about uh, providing outreach services uh, from the nearest uh, primary healthcare uh, center. We've also been able to uh, use the, our understanding of um, uh, basic technology uh, to uh, to. Uh, implement telemedicine, right? So we know that in many areas right now, uh, people in communities have access to mobile phones, right? So using those mobile phones, they're able to uh, make uh, you know calls uh, using uh, video technology and ask uh, a medical officer, a midwife, uh, questions about uh, what they need to do uh, if there's an emergency. Or if, uh, even if it's not an emergency, they're able to ask uh, simple questions about what they need to do. And because of that video technology, uh, the health worker is able to say, okay, can I see uh, this pimple that you say you have uh, maybe on your arm? You know, let me see how ripe it is. You know, is it, is it painful? You know, so you're able to carry out a consultation that probably will take uh, a whole day's walk from the village to the health facility, but that instantaneous, uh, engagement uh, can uh, really uh, take place because uh, of the use of uh, technology. Uh, with the uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic, uh, one thing that we've been able to do is uh, to build capacity of health workers. So one of the challenges with accessing uh, health services during the pandemic was that uh, not only were people uh, afraid of uh, coming to the health facilities because they feel they'll get uh, they might contract COVID-19, but even the health workers uh, were concerned that uh, if when they give services, they might contract um, uh, the uh, COVID-19 virus. So where we needed to uh, build capacity rapidly, uh, we used uh, the um, you know technology such as uh, Zoom, which is uh, you know available freely, uh, to actually uh, organize. Uh, meetings with uh, frontline health workers and explain to them what the pandemic was all about, what they needed to do uh, to protect themselves from uh, contracting the virus. Basic things such as uh, using uh, personal protective equipment like face masks, making sure that they wash their hands uh, before uh, they attend to patients, after they attend to every patient, you know, using gloves, uh, using sanitizers. So we're able to rapidly reach out to these health workers because of uh, these types of uh, simple uh, technology. Uh, we've also uh, been able to uh, go beyond uh, training health workers using Zoom, uh, using uh, you know, the audiovisual uh, technology, uh, to also leveraging on technology to improve 
our ability to manage data. Like they say, necessity is the mother of invention. So with the COVID-19 vaccination uh, rollout, uh, what we've done in Nigeria is to look at some of the uh, best practices uh, in uh, you know, the developed countries, uh, some parts of Africa, and then uh, made a hybrid with what we traditionally do. So with the technology, you are able to schedule uh, the vaccination program, uh, get people to sign up, um, you categorize them by age, uh, by profession, um, and then the absence or presence of comorbidities, uh, you know, using a simple uh, online forms. But you're also, uh, what we're also doing is providing uh, designated health centers where people can do a walk-in. So if you're not able to successfully actually uh, schedule a, a, a vaccination, you can do a walk-in. So that kind of hybrid has made it possible for us to reach uh, people uh, faster. Again, this is simple uh, technology that makes it easier for us to also manage the data, uh, the vaccination uh, data, because we're now, we're now able to uh, categorize people into different phases. So if when you uh, sign up to the uh, online portal, you say you are a frontline health worker, then we know that you're a priority and we put you in phase one. If, for example, you say you are 50 years and above, uh, then we know uh, you are in the second phase uh, after the prioritized uh, frontline health workers. Then if you say you, are, you have a, an underlying disease, a comorbidity, we know that you are in phase three. And then if you don't have any of this, you don't fall into any of these first three categories, then we know you are in phase four. And then in which case, uh, we know exactly when we're going to schedule you to come in for your vaccinations. Again, this is uh, you know, leveraging on very uh, basic uh, technology. So uh, we've been able to learn quite a lot uh, as a result of the, of the pandemic. And we're, we're confident that uh, using our experience of uh, uh, rolling out campaigns, polio campaigns, measles campaigns, um, you know, we've been able to learn so much about how we can reach the, the last mile. Uh, this is exactly the same thing that we're uh, using to make sure that uh, we get our vaccines uh, out uh, into the arms of uh, those who are eligible for COVID-19 vaccination. It sounds like you've really had to rethink the way you deliver primary care uh, by adopting, leveraging technology and, 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 you know, adopting different ways of delivering those services um relying on more of what you have do you think that's the future especially in africa given the shortages that we have the chronic shortages of health professionals of nurses of doctors is technology combined with um you know the, the kind of workforce that we have in abundance perhaps community health workers and nurses the way forward, the future that will allow us to complement those shortages and enabling us to, to actually deliver services more effectively, even during a pandemic such as this. I truly believe that that is the way to go, uh, that we have to use uh, a hybrid of what is regularly available and then tap into technology. And then I believe that we'll be able to uh, front load some of the uh, low hanging fruits uh, uh, be able to overcome some of the uh, very basic uh, challenges that we face in, with our health uh, services. Uh, we're not going to be able to uh, recruit uh, the numbers of health workers that we need in our uh, health services. But if we're able to optimize technology, then it is possible uh, for us to expand the access that community members have to uh, frontline uh, health workers. And uh, in the future, uh, leveraging on these types of technologies will make it uh, possible for us to uh, shrink the waiting time between when uh, somebody who is sick sees uh, a health uh, worker. And also, uh, in terms of distance, uh, it will also make it possible uh, for us to uh, access care despite uh, large distances between uh, communities. Uh, I see that in some of uh, the rural communities that are tapping into uh, the use of drones to be able to supply uh, blood products to uh, you know commodities again uh, it is with technologies such as this uh, low-cost uh, technologies uh, that will be able to 
uh, you know, help uh, African countries uh, actually access care. Uh, right now, one thing that we've seen is these technologies might be expensive now, but in the next five to 10 years, because uh, people now find better ways of making the components of these technologies cheaper, then it makes it easier for them to become available. So you can imagine, you know, uh, 10, 20 years ago, uh, even uh, phones were much more expensive than they, than they are these days, right? You can get a phone uh, for whatever budget uh, that, you, that you have. So I believe that in the future, uh, you know, uh, technology such as uh, drones uh, will get uh, much cheaper. And uh, this is the time for Africans to plug into uh, that opportunity so that they can leapfrog, uh, you know, into the future uh, with uh, te technologies and the interventions uh, that can uh, ameliorate some of the challenges that we face currently. Yes, and I'm sure I, I, talking to, you know, drawing from the lessons of polio, uh, what, what Nigeria has done with polio. They, I'm sure there are great lessons there on how, um, you know, governments could be talking to the telecoms industry to make sure that the, the infrastructure that is needed or the cost of accessing that technology becomes accessible in order to bring services closer to where they are needed and at a cost that, that people can afford. And of course, we are in the middle of the of a pandemic, and service disruptions have been a major problem, not only in African countries but pretty much all over uh, the around the world. And but in Africa, in particular, I'd like to maybe just have your comments about you know what you think has been the impact of service disruptions um, on on healthcare service delivery, because there are many projections that um, estimate the, the, the number of potential lives lost from service disruptions being you know, far in excess of the number of people who have died as a direct cause of the coronavirus because our systems are not uh, resilient. So what in your assessment um, of how Nigeria's primary health care has coped during the pandemic, um, you know, how to, to what extent have you been able to continue providing healthcare services at the primary care level uh, to minimize the, the, the impact of uh, COVID-related disruptions? So at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, just like uh, everywhere else in Africa, uh, we experienced uh, a downturn uh, in the services at the primary healthcare level uh, due to uh, multiple reasons. One, there was the issue around uh, people being afraid to go to health facilities because they will contract the fear that they will contract the virus. Uh, health workers too being a little bit uh, you know, reticent in terms of um, attending to patients, but there was also the lockdowns. So the lockdowns also uh, made access uh, to uh, transportation logistics different, so uh, difficult. So either the health workers were not able to access uh, their workplaces or even uh, clients were not able to get to the health uh, facility. So we saw uh, you know, a, a decline in the number of people that uh, accessed uh, basic health care services. But one thing that we did uh, quite early on uh, was to recognize uh, uh, transmission will get to the communities and become you know, a widespread uh, community transmission of uh, the COVID-19 virus. Uh, so what we did uh, was to quickly roll out uh, a, a manual uh, providing guidance to primary healthcare uh, workers. Uh, we then developed uh, a training um, you know, uh, and facilitators uh, guide uh, for this, uh, from these manuals and trained over 220,000 uh, uh, primary healthcare uh, workers uh, within a span of uh, about uh, two weeks. Uh, so what we did was to use technology, uh, to use Zoom technology to uh, train uh, at the national level, then cascaded it all the way uh, to the uh, LGA and then the uh, world level, where we were able to uh, provide uh, physical distancing. Uh, we were able to do uh, some physical uh, training. So that helped us to quickly begin uh, to turn and reverse 
the decline in the number of people that were accessing services. And we saw, you know, from uh, when the first case of uh, COVID-19 was reported uh, by, by the end of February, uh, we saw a decline uh, all the way to June in terms of people accessing basic healthcare services. But as from July, uh, because uh, we uh, trained quite early, we began to see, see an upsurge and a reversal, and then people started accessing uh, uh, more, more care. Uh, so it was very critical that uh, we, we rolled out uh, the, the training uh, early on, uh, but without a, a doubt, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic actually uh, affected access uh, to health services. But the lesson here is that COVID-19 pandemic is a global phenomenon. And for us uh, to uh, begin to build back uh, our economies, to build back uh, the way uh, we used to live, uh, it is important that uh, as a community of humans that we make the vaccines available to every country, uh, to every community. There's no such thing as a partial eradication of uh, COVID-19. For us to eradicate uh, COVID-19, uh, for us to control this uh, pandemic, it's important that there's equitable access to the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, a situation where we're witnessing uh, vaccine uh, nationalism, protectionism, uh, will only delay our ability uh, to uh, eradicate uh, this disease uh, because in the end, um, many more people will die uh, from non-COVID causes uh, because of the challenges that even COVID-19 brings. Uh, I will not uh, be quick to say that uh, the deaths from COVID-19 are relatively lower because of course you know that uh, the data in many African countries uh, is not as accurate when it comes to uh, morbidity and mortality factors. Clearly the deaths are not as bad as what we've seen in uh, Europe and uh, the Americas, uh, but I do uh, recognize that a lot of Africans also died. And you know, that really uh, is all about how it impacts the individual. Uh, for one person uh, who loses his father, his mother, or a loved one, that is significant, right? It's not just a question of whether a thousand people died or not. Just that one individual makes a huge difference. But for us to be able to protect our loved ones, to protect Africans, it is important that uh, access to vaccine uh, is more equitable and is more widespread. A situation where you know many African countries are still uh, trying to access their first doses of uh, the vaccine does not go well uh, for the global march towards controlling uh, this pandemic. Observing what has been happening, how countries, you know, they make all the right noises about solidarity and um, everybody must be protected, but do completely the opposite uh, of what is needed to make sure that everyone has access. Um, just, you know, watching the debacle with uh, COVAX and, you know, the, the wide support it had and the discrepancy in, in access to the vaccine that, that, you know, that gap really tells you that the world is not standing together. And I suppose this is something that Africa will have to think very long and hard about how to prevent something like this happening again in the future. But I'd like to take you back to to the to, to polio and um, how that has informed other areas, other disease control um, areas. You mentioned measles programs and so forth. All of these informing your approach, but. I'm, I'm thinking in particular the Ebola virus uh, outbreak that happened um, in, in, in Guinea and was spreading to Liberia, Sierra Leone, and eventually reached Nigeria in Lagos and Port Harcourt um, with a traveler coming from Monrovia, Liberia. And, and in that case, Nigeria was able again to draw from the polio experience and from the infrastructure that had been put in place for that and mounted a very effective response that prevented Ebola from taking hold around the country. So from the time that the index case, the very first case was detected, it took Nigeria three months to be declared Ebola virus free by the WHO. And I think that's a pretty rapid and effective response by any standard. 
So, um, how how did that experience? How um, you know that experience with with Ebola uh, virus? Um, you know, to what extent was it informed? What what were the elements that you took from your experience with with polio that allowed you to be able to control effectively uh, in the way that you did? So it was all about uh, bringing everybody together, understanding uh, the the challenge, understanding uh, the uh, really different elements of what would be required uh, to stamp out uh, the Ebola uh, virus. Uh, with the polio eradication uh, program, we understood that uh, we needed uh, one plan. We needed one team. So what we did was to establish the Ebola Emergency Operations Center, just like we had the Polio Emergency Operations Center. We brought all the different uh, partners together quite early on and agreed on one plan on how we were going to uh, confront uh, Ebola virus disease uh, in Nigeria. Uh, we also recognized that uh, there was a need uh, to bring in communities, to educate communities under the leadership of leader, local leaders. Again, local leaders had took uh, over uh, the narrative and communicated very clearly uh, what the Ebola virus disease was about. If you remember, Lenya, you know, at the beginning of the uh, Ebola virus disease, uh, there was also this conspiracy to say, oh my goodness, uh, the uh, Americans or the Europeans had created another virus just to keep uh, kill uh, Africans, right? So overcoming those conspiracy theories was very, very important uh, from the get-go so that uh, the right information was passed and the right mitigations against uh, the virus had to be uh, completely uh, disseminated and acceptable to uh, community members. Well, we were able to achieve that and allowed communities to take over the correct narrative. That was very, very helpful. Then we also knew from the polio eradication program that it was important to have boots on the ground to get people who will go to the communities uh, and educate, but beyond that, also do contact tracing. So our experience from uh, the polio eradication program of going house to house, uh, giving uh, vaccines uh, to uh, kids under five helped us uh, replicate this uh, permeation of communities, going to the communities and doing contact tracing, asking questions. Those interpersonal communication skills that we learned during the polio eradication program where we're able to train uh, frontline health workers to knock on the door uh, and ask uh, householders in a respectful manner, do you have a child that's under five? Uh, we're here to give the polio vaccine. You know, all of those uh, abilities to communicate very uh, respectfully to, uh, you know, to community members helped us do contact tracing. So immediately uh, we had any uh, history of contact uh, with an Ebola uh, case, and uh, we had teams that rapidly went to the communities and were able to manage community members and do uh, contact uh, tracing. But very, very importantly as well is that as we did all of the contact tracing, we used GIS technology uh, to really map out where the Ebola virus disease were going to and where we needed to deploy uh, our resources. And we're very, very happy that there was a lot of leadership, leadership on the part uh, of um, uh, you know, different uh, community leaders, leadership on the part of uh, our donors, our development partners, who also brought in the resources uh, to make sure uh, that we uh, practically replicated uh, the polio eradication uh, program uh, in our uh, uh, you know, in our war against uh, the Ebola virus disease. I remember actually uh, the, the participating in um, in a clinical trial for an Ebola vaccine around that time, uh, just seeing how much people were suffering um, in, in the hardest hit areas. That was my, my little contribution. And, and I've been wondering, actually watching what's happening with um, with COVID right now, that imagine if we were to have a situation, a similar situation to COVID, but with something like Ebola. Do you think 
um, we would be able to get that vaccine, even though it was developed very much, you know, from 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 the with the participation, strong participation of African communities. I think I, I think African countries need to participate more when it comes to uh, these clinical trials. Uh, if there were more Africans participating, I believe that uh, uh, some of the hesitancy that we're seeing uh, right now would have been much less. Uh, there are questions uh, from Africans, you know, to, you know, around, you know, these vaccines uh, were mostly uh, tried in other countries and whether at all uh, it works well with Africans, even though a large, uh, you know, uh, sample of uh, the clinical trials also involved Africans, I mean, the Africans in the diaspora uh, who also volunteered and were part of the uh, clinical trials. So, of course, uh, you can replicate and extrapolate the findings from those types of uh, clinical trials to Africans who live uh, within the, the continent, continent. I believe that, uh, yes, uh, it will have been possible to, uh, you know, to get uh, the vaccines even much, much uh, faster. But, I, but also, uh, this is a lesson for a lot of African countries uh, to try and ramp up their abilities to uh, locally provide, uh, produce uh, vaccines. Mm -hmm. And we should be thinking about uh, the, the next pandemic and how prepared we are uh, to make sure that uh, we're not left behind in uh, the arena of uh, local vaccine production. No, absolutely. A great point about, you know, thinking about the future. I think not only for Africa, but actually for the rest of the world. If you think about some of the things we saw at the beginning of this pandemic where um, Europe was completely shut down and so was Asia because COVID was at the time they were quite inundated um, in those parts. You can imagine if we were to spread risk, right? Production risk around the globe and have effective, um, efficient uh, production facilities on all the continents, then in situations like this, you could actually ensure that the world continues to, to, to get the medical products, the vaccines that they need to be able to respond to public health emergencies. So um, we, we will wrap up. I think you know we've taken quite a lot of your time already today, but I'd like to finish by just perhaps looking back at Nigeria's um, great success, Africa's great success. Um, you know, what it means uh, for, for global health. So there is a general view in the global health community in health development that African countries have everything to learn from others, but uh, they don't have very much that they can teach others about uh, controlling or, or um, responding to global public health issues. It is, of course, an issue that I don't agree with personally. Um, because there is a lot, I'm sure, that others can learn from the experience of African countries, whether in controlling polio, like uh, Nigeria, uh, like in the case of Nigeria, or with Ebola, with uh, our malaria control, tuberculosis, HIV, um, and AIDS. So just to wrap up, I'd love to hear from you, um, what you think uh, the lessons the global health community could take from Nigeria's experience with polio eradication um, towards controlling diseases in other areas and whether you think that has relevance only for infectious diseases like Ebola, like we, um, what you did um, with Ebola, or, or it can be extended to other uh, areas, non-infectious diseases like cancer and diabetes. I believe that uh, as a global community, we have a lot to learn from each other. Uh, we, we've seen even with the rollout of the uh, COVID-19 vaccine in, uh, in America and uh, in parts of Europe, how uh, the uh, actual rollout uh, had a lot of hiccups, right, before they finally got uh, it right. If you see what has happened in some uh, countries uh, in Africa, you've seen, you've seen that they've done a better job of rolling out, you know, uh, effortlessly. Uh, not necessarily because the African countries are, are better at rolling out uh, uh, vaccine vaccinations, uh, but because the African countries have more experience in uh, campaign scenarios. So uh, the developed countries are more used to 
uh, a very structured uh, routine immunization system uh, where people come in when they are scheduled. So they're not used to outreaches, uh, campaign scenarios, but a lot of African countries you know, have experience with a lot of campaigns, measles campaigns, meningitis campaigns, yellow fever campaigns, and of course, uh, the polio eradication uh, campaigns. All of those experiences have now come uh, to bear and has made it possible for African countries uh, to roll out their uh, COVID-19 vaccination programs uh, a whole lot easier. Again, because they have memories uh, from rolling out a lot of uh, these campaigns. And because of uh, the polio eradication program, you also see how uh, you know, a country like Nigeria was able to rapidly uh, control uh, Ebola virus uh, uh, disease. Uh, when it occurred, when Ebola occurred in, uh, in the United States, you, you know, there was some struggle uh, in terms of uh, uh, making sure that uh, yeah, it was controlled. Uh, in, in good time. So I believe that uh, there are a lot of opportunities for us to uh, learn from uh, one another uh, when it comes to vaccine hesitancy. Uh, a lot of the vaccine, vaccine hesitancy that's occurring in Africa is actually uh, as a result of uh, you know, ex exportations from uh, the European countries. So how are we better uh, able to manage vaccine hesitancy while it seems to be a growing phenomenon uh, in developed countries. It is because our systems in Africa are also dependent on uh, uh, you know, local communities, local leaders, uh, community ownership, uh, people really projecting their decision-making to their leaders uh, and really following uh, what their leaders uh, you know, uh, advise. Uh, this is a little bit different uh, from what we're seeing uh, in, in developed countries. Even as we speak, uh, you can see in uh, countries such as the United States, uh, where uh, you know, the conservatives, are, a large proportion of, uh, the, uh, of the conservatives, I saw uh, some data recently that showed as, as, as much as 30% of uh, conservatives don't want to take uh, the uh, COVID-19 uh, vaccine, uh, and then uh, there are other, you know, groups that say they are not going to take the uh, COVID-19 vaccine. So how do we break into those types of uh, anti-vaccination movements, uh, learning from what has happened in, in Africa? I think that is very, very critical and something that we can learn from. Excellent. That's, that's I mean, a, a great place to, to stop. It's not always about the resources or you know those kinds of things i think what i'm hearing from you is that the institutional memory the experience the fact that others have done it before um there's a lot that others can teach from uh, for, can can take from from what country uh, african countries are doing and how they've dealt with this so um so it would be very interesting going forward to think about how we can also uh, as african countries be able to share those experiences better with others so they can learn from us and 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 to be confident enough to say hey we actually um know how this works and 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 we could you know there are lessons you can take from us so thank you very much dr faisal shuaib the executive director and ceo of Nigeria's National Primary Healthcare Development Agency. He's been talking to me about polio eradication in Nigeria, a true African success, and some of the lessons that we can take from that experience.